glad y'all are here in person, and I'm glad you're there online as we go to the Lord and to the Word today and hear what He has to say in a series we continue in our identity, talking about who we are, who God says we are, and how to get out from behind that mask that we put on so uh, we, we show the world one one face, but God knows the truth about who we really are. So we uh, that's what this series is about. Uh, before we go forward, though, this morning, I want to mention just a couple of things. First, if you've not already, voted, vote. Vote, vote, vote. You know, I, I've heard some folks say, uh, well, the lines are long, you know, because of the coronavirus and because a lot more people actually are voting this time around. The lines are long, and it just reminds me, uh, you know, there, there are people in, in other countries that would stand all day for a chance to vote. And when we gripe about the privilege, what does that say about us? That, you know, we just take for granted this great privilege. And to be honest with you, it's all a matter of timing. I voted yesterday. It took me exactly 32 minutes from the time I stepped up to the time I came out. Yes, I timed it. I was very curious. The slowdown was mostly because of the coronavirus precautions, but vote because you are an American citizen. Exercise your right to vote. <clears throat> as far as how to vote, you're a follower of Christ, vote biblical values. Vote biblical values. That, that's what we are, that's how we exercise this freedom as believers because being a follower of Christ always comes first. So vote biblical values, but vote, exercise that privilege in this period, and, and pray for our nation. Uh, we're going, in a couple of weeks especially, we'll be praying for our nation right before uh, November 3rd, but be praying now. We prayed this morning. Pray at home. Pray continually. Pray always for our nation uh, during this time. Also, uh, just a word about precautions and and the coronavirus and where we are as a church. Uh the virus has not changed, to my knowledge, has not. So we, we don't suddenly walk out the door today and go, wow, there's no virus. So uh, and we have not changed our precautions inside, so please keep that in mind. I'm blessed to see that folks are getting more comfortable coming to worship uh, in person, which is great. And if you're not yet comfortable with that, worship online. Uh, all grace, no guilt is what we're about. But the interesting thing, and maybe the irony of it is, the more comfortable we are to, with coming to worship in person, the more we need to be vigilant with our precautions, not less. The more we need to be vigilant with those precautions. So I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable or run you off, but just reminding you of this. We have had an uptick in North Carolina of cases and in Brunswick County. We have a few schools that have classes quarantined just since the, the kids went back to school. They've had some cases. We have a sister church. We could just about throw a rock at from our church that has had to quarantine for the last few weeks. They've not had in-house services. They had started back, much like we have. Uh, there's a sister church in North Carolina Baptist Convention that was doing what we're doing, and then they felt comfortable enough to went back to small groups, Bible studies, Sunday school, and immediately had a breakout of the virus. We just have to be vigilant, and, and, and I'm asking you to do that. So, be careful, be cautious, respect one another, love one another, and remember we haven't changed our precautions at all. I'm glad you're here, as always, glad you're there online, and let's follow those precautions. What's going to happen next? God only knows. Isn't it good we can trust God? Isn't it good that he knows 
what comes next. Uh, just, uh, just remember that and let's, let's be wise in what we do. If you have your Bible with you, find with me this morning 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You at home also, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And of course, the scriptures that I'll read shortly will be on the screen where you can see those. But if you have your Bible, follow along in your own Bible because it's always good to see in your copy of God's Word what we're reading, what we're talking about. You may even want to underline those things. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and just hold your place there for just a moment. We have all become very accustomed to the calorie labels on food products now. Uh, But some of us in here will remember before the time before those labels were so prevalent, and especially before those the labeling of calories on meal items showed up in restaurants and fast food chains. Now we walk in and we see the numbers up there. We're not surprised by that. That hasn't been really very long, really just in the last 15, 20 years or so. It started showing up in different restaurant chains uh, across the country. But now, 2020, 75% of Americans love that they can see the calorie labeling on food items. When you go to the grocery store, you can read those calories. When you pull out your cereal or your soup, you can read those calories. 75% of Americans. New York did a study and found that 93% of the citizens of New York like that the calorie labels are on there. They like to know what the calories are uh, on the foods they're buying and the foods that they are eating. But here's the thing. Between 2007 and 2013, 31 different studies were conducted on Americans related to whether or not they pay attention to those labels and whether or not what they eat is impacted by those labels. Far and away, we don't care. We're glad the labels are there, but we don't care. Beliefs matter only as much as you taking action on those beliefs. It's just that simple. You can believe something's right and something's good all day long. It doesn't make a bit of difference unless you act on it. We, our, our actions are typically motivated by, by our beliefs, but there's a lot of stuff we'd say, hey, that's a great idea. I'm just not going to do anything about it. That's kind of how we are in our nature. But the Bible teaches once we understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are imposed with a decision. We are compelled to decide. Do you know there's no such thing as being neutral about the, about the gospel? It's impossible. You might say, well, you know, I'm I'm thinking about it. I'm neutral about it. I'm just not saying yes to God. I'm not saying no. The fact of the matter is the Bible teaches there is no neutrality where Christ comes in. You either say yes or say no. And to not say yes is to say no. So once you understand your condition and being without Christ and that your identity should be in Christ, you are compelled to make a decision. Not surprisingly, that's where we're going this morning. That's where we're going this morning. We're in a message series where we are talking about our identity, how the Bible defines human beings and us personally. And we've learned in this series that God created all human beings in the image of God. Then Adam and Eve sinned, and because of their sin, uh, our identity was corrupted, our relationships, our free will, our purpose was corrupted. 
and our image was tainted in our perception. We're still made in the image of God, but we're worried far more about our self-image, what we think about ourselves, what the world thinks about us, rather than what God says about us. And as we're going to see this morning, when we trust Christ as our Savior, we come back into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we find again that God is the one that identifies who we are. God is the one that gives us our identity. In the passage we're going to read this morning, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking about being a new creation in Christ. It's a very familiar passage, and one, in fact, we've looked at uh, over the years several times at First Baptist Church as recently as this summer. But we're going to do it a little bit differently this morning in that we're going to expand outward from this key verse that a lot of, a lot of Christians know, 2 Corinthians 5.17, uh, if anyone is, a, uh, is in Christ, they're a new creation. We're going to expand outward from that and see how being a new creation in Christ, having a new identity in Christ impacts us and what that really means. So if you have your Bible with you, find that with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now one of the things you're going to look at that's interesting uh, is the reason that we need to be in Christ. We're going to focus on that this morning. The reason we need to be in Christ, the reason we need to be saved or born again in Christ. In our culture, even in our churches, we, we generally think of being saved or becoming a Christian as having two benefits. And we read about this, hear about this all the time. Two big benefits of becoming a Christian. One is we get a home in heaven. We get to know when we die we're going to go to heaven. And that's true. When you trust Christ as your Savior, forgiven of your sins, he gives you a home in heaven. The problem is a lot of us see that as kind of an eternal insurance policy. And once we do that, and we make the decision to trust Christ and join the church, we're good to go. We figure we can do pretty much whatever we want to do, show up at church now and then, but we've got that eternal insurance policy. We're going to heaven. The other benefit many of us think, and many of us kind of perceive coming to Christ as having this benefit, is he teaches us how to live. So it's sort of an ethical or moral decision. I want better guidelines to live by. I won't, uh, I'm tired of reading the self-help books, so I'll pull out the Bible, and the Bible tells me how to use my money. The Bible tells me how to treat my spouse, how to have better relationships, who to date, uh, the five guidelines for this, the 15 principles for that. And again, there's a lot of truth to that because once you come to Christ, you're enabled to live God's will, to understand the Bible, apply it to your life, and the Bible covers your whole life. So there's a lot of truth to that. But is that the reason, is that the main benefit of being a Christian, of following Christ? In this passage we're going to read this morning, I want you to intentionally look for another reason, another benefit, another purpose for following Christ See what the Apostle Paul says and what he keys in on in this passage as a much bigger reason. In fact, it's the reason the other two things even apply, going to heaven and living for Christ and and doing what the Bible says. He gives us this one much bigger reason. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start reading at verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. For now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, now we, uh, yet now we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see... 
And some of your Bibles might say, behold. It's an underscored word. It's kind of like saying, look at that. The new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you catch it? Paul says there's a bigger purpose, a bigger reason, a greater benefit for trusting Christ. You must die to your old self and be born again in Christ. Because that old self keeps telling you, I've got to be good. I've got to be good enough to go to heaven. I've got to practice these ethical principles and do the right thing. Do good, do good, do good. And right off the bat, God says, you can't do good because you're a sinner. And no matter how hard you try, God doesn't accept us because of our being good and trying hard. He accepts us because of Christ and what Christ has done for us. So we need to be, what, a new creation in Christ. Here Paul is talking about identity, that we are, that those who trust Christ are a new creation in Christ. He's talking about identity, and he's expanding on that. There's a reason he started talking about it. He started talking about it because the Christians he's writing to are still seeing the people around them the way they saw the people around them before they came to faith in Christ, or what he calls a worldly perspective. You're still looking at them as if you never got saved and as if they don't need to get saved. They, uh, they're still apart from Christ and you're not. And that should change the way you see them. That's why he's writing about it. But then that, that, that wonderful verse pops up. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Over 160 times in his writing, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ. It's how the Apostle Paul came to define what it meant to be a follower of Christ, what it meant to be a believer, because it started with your new position and your new condition. You're no longer out of Christ. You're no longer over there away from God. Now you're in Christ and you have a new identity in Christ. You're a new person in Christ with a new identity. Now you live for God in, in, in Christ. And what that means is prior to you coming to Christ, when you came to God, he saw you as the sinner who had rebelled against him. But now when you're saved, you trust Christ, you come to Christ, you know what he sees? He sees Christ. Your identity is in Christ. You live in Christ. You operate in Christ. You think in Christ. You're changed in Christ. Your identity now is in Christ. And here's the best part. This is for anyone. If anyone, he says, is in Christ, which means it's for everyone, that everyone can be in Christ. They just have to repent of their sin and come to Christ and receive from Christ that new identity, coming back to their creator, and their identity now is in Christ. As we've been in this series, we've talked about alternatives to identity, how the world defines our identity as compared to how God defines our identity. And one of the theories I want to uh, crack open this morning is called critical theory. Uh, and let me pause here and mention, by the way, a great resource for me for this and for other worldview issues is the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. If you've never looked at that online, go home this afternoon and look at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, there's a lot more about what I'm going to talk about there as well as other worldview-related issues and identity-related issues. 
but I want us to see this particular alternative because uh, this alternative has filtered down from the universities over the last 10, 12, 15, 20 years. It started in sociology, and now it's living in our streets in, in the United States of America. And Christians are asking, should we believe critical theory, sometimes called critical race theory, and intersectionality? What is it? And should we believe it? And how does that identify us? This this is what it says, and I'm summarizing. It's really fairly complex, but I'm summarizing it. It goes something like this. Critical theory separates all human beings based on power. You either have power or you don't have power. You either have power or you don't have power. And following from that, critical theory says, everyone, therefore, is either an oppressor or the oppressed. If you have power, you're an oppressor. If you don't have power, you are the oppressed. And every human being is classified that way in critical theory. You're oppressors or you're oppressed. Then the question arises, well, how do I know? How do I know which I am? So that's when the part of the theory called intersectionality comes in. What it says is there are different groups in our culture and humanity, and the more of those groups you identify with, the more identity you have with those groups, the more oppressed you are. The fewer of the groups you identify with, the more power you try to exert over those groups, the less oppressed. So you're you're oppressed if you identify with a lot of these groups. That's where you get your identity. You're less oppressed the fewer you identify with. It goes like this. I'm a white, middle-aged, heterosexual male. So I'm not very oppressed, according to this theory. I, I, I don't really experience oppression at all, but I do have a lot of power, or I have had in the past. Now, the next person would be, therefore, a white, heterosexual, middle-aged woman. She is more oppressed than I am, if only slightly, and therefore has less power than me, but still has more power over, for example, a black, middle-aged, heterosexual woman. The white woman has experienced more power, so she she oppresses more. And the black woman is more oppressed than her. Even still more oppressed than the first three is a black, middle-aged, gay woman. And so forth and so on. Then critical theory says, the more oppressed you are, the more you identify with those groups, the more oppressed you are, the more moral authority you have. So me, a white, middle-aged heterosexual male, I have almost no moral authority in our culture. In other words, I can't tell you what's right and what's wrong. But the black, middle-aged, gay female has so much moral authority, she can tell you what's right and what's wrong, and you have to listen to her. Not only do you have to listen to her, you have to bow to her and bend your knee. If you don't, you know what? You're not woke. To be woke is to accept the oppressors as having all the moral authority in our country. The oppressive, excuse me, the oppressed, have all the moral authority in our country. But here's the thing. While they have all the moral authority in our country and they are the oppressed, critical theory says they have no moral responsibility. They are not responsible for their actions and those in power cannot hold them responsible for their actions. Not only can you not tell them what's right and what's wrong, they get to do whatever they want to do. And if you tell them that's wrong, you're not woke. So they get their identity from being oppressed. 
and being able to do whatever they want to do, loot, burn, steal, whatever it is. They can do whatever they want to do. Now, don't scoff at this because the genesis of this theory is exactly what Marxism is. Marxism says the oppressed must rise up against the oppressors and the oppressors can say nothing about it. That's critical theory. There are three reasons critical theory is absolutely unbiblical. Three reasons critical theory is absolutely unbiblical. It's wrong about who we are, it's wrong about what our problem is, and it's wrong about the solution. Here's what I mean. It's wrong about who we are. Critical theory classifies human beings between in power structures and power identity, oppressed and oppressors. So what that does is that pits people against each other. It's really no different than any other version in our culture of identity that pits people against each other. Uh, you're wealthy, you're poor, whatever it is. You, you, races that are pit because of their races pit against each other. It's the same idea. And every version that does that distracts from the fact the Bible teaches our identity as human beings is that we're made in the image of God. Every human being, every human being is made in the image of God. Regardless of their class, status, and culture, every person is made in the image of God. So critical theory at the outset is wrong about who we are. Because they're wrong about who we are, they're also wrong about the problem. They say the problem is power. And that oppressors have had power over the oppressed. And for that to change, the oppressed must rise up against the oppressors. That that's the problem. The Bible teaches all human beings have the same problem. We are sinners. We are sinners in need of a Savior. doesn't matter the color of your skin. doesn't matter your economic status. doesn't matter your education level. Anything in between. If you're not a believer, a follower of Christ, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Period. That's your problem. But worse, critical theory validates sins. Critical theory actually validates sins and raises some sins to the level of virtues. Critical theory says that anger... And, and, and outrage is a virtue. Critical theory says stealing, theft, burning, looting is a virtue. Critical theory says bitterness, resentment is a virtue. And the Bible says there are character flaws in need of a Savior to cleanse you of that sin and replace your character. Critical theory says that what I'm doing right now, preaching, is oppressing you. That I'm an oppressor because I'm taking a position of authority, though I didn't ask for it. God said, preach his word. And, but critical theory says I'm an oppressor and I have no right to be doing what I'm doing right now. It doesn't mean you get to leave. They get who we are wrong. They get the problem wrong. So they get the solution wrong. Every single alternative theory about identity has a solution and they get it wrong because the only solution is Christ. Critical theory says the solution is for the, the people in power structures, the oppressors, to literally and figuratively be bow and bend our knee to the oppressed, that we must be woke and we must let them do what they want to do. We have no moral authority. And that the oppressed must rise up and change the power structures in the culture. The Bible says that's not the solution. Christ is the solution. 
Christ is the solution. That the reason those power structures exist, the reason people are oppressed, and certainly they are, is because we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And we will always struggle for our identity and always diminish other people and and pull down other people until we come to Christ and we find our identity in Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage. Once we realize and anyone realizes their need for Christ, they can come to Christ, be saved, and be in Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? Paul spells out three ways that that changes things for you. Three three things that it means to be in Christ, to have your identity in Christ. Look at this with me. To be in Christ, to be in Christ first means that you are a new person. You're a new person in Christ. As he puts it, a new creation. A new creation. Or some of your Bibles might translate it a new creature. It means the same thing. It's the same word. Now, clearly, what Paul doesn't mean is you are suddenly biologically different. I'm still Bob. I I was Bob before I trusted Christ as my Savior, and I'm an older Bob now. had more hair then, but I'm an older Bob now. I'm still Bob. I'm I'm still the same body. I'm still the same person. So, So what does he mean by this? He means that spiritually you're recreated in Christ. You you get new identity because you are re, you are the new creation. Remember that old creation where Adam and Eve sinned? That was the old creation. And after those first three chapters of the Bible, God's been working on the new creation. And we are the first step in that new creation. That when you trust Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ, become a new creation in Christ. And he says in that moment, two things happen. The old is gone. Your old sinner self is gone. How does that happen? Well, we read it. Just as Christ died, as one died, all died. Paul puts it this way in the book of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And I live now in faith in the Son of God. I live in the flesh, he says, but I live in faith in the Son of God. Why? Because my old sinner self was nailed to the cross with Christ. And when I trusted Christ as my Savior, that became a fact in God's book in heaven and in God's thinking. I have been identified now with the risen Savior, and I've been given resurrection life in Christ. The old is gone, spiritually gone. The new has come. God has reborn me in Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is what he's talking about. This is what he meant to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Trust Christ as your Savior. The old is gone. It's died. It's dead. The new has come. When a believer is baptized and goes under the water, it symbolizes that moment when the old is gone. It's died. It's dead. It's in the tomb. And when you rise out of the water, it symbolizes you're a new creation in Christ. And the old is gone and the new has come. To be in Christ means you are a new person. But here's the miracle of salvation and redemption. It's the same you, but you're brand new. And only God could do that. It's the same you, but you're brand new. God says our problem is not that we need to be better people. Our problem is that we need life. 
and that old person's got to go. Jesus said you can't put new wine into old wineskins. In fact, the Bible teaches this same thing over and over and over and over and over before and after Paul and throughout. The old is gone, the new has come. And in Christ, you have a new identity. You are wedded to the Father. And, and, and because of Christ, when, you, when God sees you, he sees your identity in Christ. He doesn't see that old sinner self. He sees your identity in Christ. That's who you are. And then you spend your life walking with Christ, being more and more made into the image of Christ, becoming more and more like Christ. So rather than look different on the outside, your character starts to change. Your thoughts start to change. So that's why Paul says, secondly, because you are in Christ, you have a new perspective. You become a new person, and now you have a new perspective. The way you see other people and the way you see yourself has changed. Now you see them the way God made them in his image. Now you see all people just the way you see yourself as lost people made in God's image but in need of a Savior. Remember the reason Paul is talking about this is to compel the church to reach out to people who need Christ, to tell people about Christ, to tell people they need, they need Christ to save them. That it's not about power structures. It's not about Democrat, Republican. It's not about race. It's not about economics. It's about this. You need Christ. And God gives us his eyes on the world. He gives us his vision of people. He helps us understand in Christ what's really happening. And we stop defining people by critical theory or Darwinism or Democrat or Republican, we start seeing people the way God sees them because we start seeing ourselves the way God sees us. People need Christ. Made in the image of God. God loves them. But they need Christ. They need Christ. So in Christ, we become a new person. In Christ, we have a new perspective. We see the world the way God sees the world. See people the way God sees people. He even says we see Christ the way God sees Christ. We have a new perspective on Christ. Think about this. Before a person comes to faith in Christ, in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward Christianity, they see Jesus as the enemy. And you know people like this, people in your own life. And when they see you coming, their, their hostility seems to rise up. You know, their problem is not you. Their problem is Christ. And their outrage against you is an outrage against God in Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. But before you came to Christ, especially if you came to Christ as an adult, you'll remember being that way too. See, what Paul was saying, and he was certainly that way, he tried to kill Christians, have them arrested, have them uh, executed. He said, now I see Christ the way God sees Christ. That he is our hope. He is our identity. He is our redemption. Then third, in Christ, you receive a new purpose. You receive a new purpose. In this series, we've seen purpose come back over and over and over. It just keeps coming up again. Why? Well, remember, in the Garden of Eden, sin corrupted our purpose. We, we were to be stewards of God's creation. And we consistently violate that stewardship over and over. But then when we come to Christ, we receive a new purpose. The purpose now is to be stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that I want to be found worthy 
of my stewardship of the gospel. And a steward is found worthy. A steward is a manager. Now, all humanity still manages creation. We're, all, we're still all managing creation. But now believers in Christ are managers of the gospel. We are stewards of the gospel. And we take it to the people around us. And we don't look at them as divided up and segmented. We look at them as people in need of a Savior. And they need Christ. Paul says that's what this gospel is about. That's what this salvation is about. That's why you're a new creation in Christ. Because when you have your identity in Christ, you know that other people need Christ as well and need their identity in Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, that becomes our starting point. Instead of searching for your identity uh, in the things of the world and trying to make an identity for yourself, understand that your identity now is in Christ. And what you do is because of Christ and your stewardship is in Christ. And when you struggle with problems in this world and, and you struggle with your identity, remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. 2016, the Chicago Cubs were in the World Series, Game 7, doing well, but with a history of going from doing well to disintegrating. It had been 108 years since they had won the World Series. And sure enough, the game against the Indians was starting to leak away. They could see it slipping away out of their hands. It went to the 10th inning, and they were tied. Instead of in the lead. And suddenly there was a downpour on the field. Everyone rushed to the dugout. It was like they had a reprieve for a moment as the field was covered up. And in that moment, one of the players got up in the dugout, the Chicago Cubs, and he said, Listen, guys, you got here because you're good at what you do. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Then he spelled out for them the games they had won, uh, that they had won more in the regular season than everyone else, and on and on. And pretty much in the next few minutes, everyone turned their attention back, not to being defeated or being losers, but to being who they were, the, the Chicago Cubs. And they went back out in the 10th inning. They won. It's as if God is consistently and regularly telling believers, remember who you are. When the, when the world says... This is your identity. This is your identity. This is your identity. No, your identity is in Christ. He made you. He shaped you. He created you. He wants you back. And if you came back and trusted Christ, you are now in Christ. And your identity is in Christ. Now you see the world the way God sees the world. The tragedy of Christians and the church is that we still see the world the way the world sees the world. And we let the world define for us the divisions, the breakdown, and, and all the problems. Instead, in Christ, we should see the world the way God sees the world. Lost in need of a Savior. We are stewards of the gospel. That's our purpose on this planet. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And when I do, I want to invite believers in Christ to recommit to that purpose, to remember who you are in Christ and recommit to that purpose. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, in-house or at home, I'm going to pray with you and invite you to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you thought about it up to now as a ticket to heaven, kind of like an eternal, eternal insurance policy. Or maybe you thought about it as a way to build a set of skills, to be a good person, to live a good life. Well, I'm telling you right now, 
more than being good, you need Christ. You need to be in Christ and find your identity in Him.